The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the front lines, discuss the sacking of Ukraine's defence minister, Alexei Reznikov, and we analyse the recent Ukrainian assault on the village of Verbove. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 4th of September, one year and 192 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, foreign correspondent James Kilner, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, and former Ukrainian MP and managing director at the Henry Jackson Society, Aliona Halivka. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Thanks, David. A particularly close intermingling of the military and political this morning and over the weekend, a Clausewitz special. As we've come to expect on the eve of important summits, Russia carried out a three and a half hour drone assault on the Danube river port of Izmail in the early hours of this morning, just hours before Putin is due to meet Turkish President Erdogan to discuss the potential revival of the Black Sea grain deal. The barrage of drones targeted the port, damaged warehouses and production buildings, and the debris caused fires at several civilian infrastructure sites, Ukrainian officials have said. The massive drone attack came just a day after Russia hit Reni, another major port on the Danube, which James will cover in more detail shortly. Around 17 drones were shot down, Odessa's government said, but some hit their targets. There are no immediate reports of casualties. Significantly, Ukraine is claiming that Russian Shahid drones fell and detonated on the territory of Romania in what it calls yet another confirmation that Russia's missile territory poses a huge threat not only to Ukraine's security, but also to the security of neighbouring countries, including NATO member states. However... Breaking news, Romania's defence ministry has just denied to Reuters the Ukrainian claim that Russian drones fell and detonated on their territory. Spokesman said uh, that a statement would be released later today. We are waiting for that and some more reflections from that from Joe in a moment. Now, as I say, these attacks and the subsequent claims from Kyiv are evidently designed to set the stage prior to vital meetings regarding the grain deal. We understand that in the past couple of hours, Erdogan has arrived in Russia's Black Sea resort of Sochi for said talks. Erdogan was accompanied by a large delegation that included Turkey's defence, foreign energy and finance ministers, with Erdogan aiming to convince Putin to return to Ukraine grain export deal that helped, of course, ease a global food crisis before Moscow pulled out in July. I would argue there's quite a lot of stake for Erdogan. He brokered the last deal and by personally putting himself forward as the chief negotiator today, he will want to come out of this with something to show for this reputationally. Yet questions remain over Turkey's trustworthiness from the perspective of Western powers, including Ukraine, who fear that any revived deal may make concessions to Russia. 
reducing certain sanctions, for instance, which was evidently the intention for departing the deal in the first place. As we've seen time and time again, Russia moves first, sets the tone of the discussion without really an adequate response from the West. Whilst there have been attempts to reopen channels for grain shipments via certain sea and land corridors, the perception is, and I emphasise that word because no doubt a lot is going on behind the scenes, that the West has little leverage over Russia on this. Had there been a more robust response with alternative avenues found speedily for shipping grain out of Ukraine, thus reducing that leverage of Russia's influence in the discussions, things might look very different entering these negotiations. As it is, it rather looks like the West is relying on the deal being restruck via Turkey, who's hardly, as I say, the most trusted Western ally when it comes to these business dealings, with seemingly little leverage over the Russians, who think nothing of bombarding Ukraine's grain silos in the hours before the meeting, as if to drum home their control over the framing of these negotiations. Now, frustratingly for Kyiv, as we've discussed in the past, five European Union countries, including Poland, banned imports of grain from Ukraine for fear of its impact on domestic food markets. Ukraine have said they will challenge that and challenge any extension of the continuation of it. But it is another thorn in Kyiv's side in this context. But turning away from the diplomatic front to the military, it is evident that Ukraine is continuing to probe Russian defences in the Black Sea around Crimea. The Russian Defence Ministry has claimed that its naval aviation destroyed four US-made inflatable boats carrying Ukraine troops, although we can't independently verify that, although we know that Ukraine is active there. They have admitted as much. Kyiv's Defence Ministry spokesperson, Hannah Melia, has been keen to emphasise today that Ukraine has regained a total of 47 kilometres since the start of the summer counteroffensive, including further gains this weekend around Bakhmut and south of Robotnay. The defence official said that Russia has carried out unsuccessful attempts to take back positions in Donetsk. It is hard for us to judge at this stage whether these advances do indeed mark a significant strategic shift on the ground. As I said last week, if Ukraine were able to seize just a few miles in certain sectors, many believe it could cut off vital supply corridors for Kremlin forces. But what is undoubtedly true is that Kyiv is clawing back the narrative that the counteroffensive is a failure. Washington acknowledged yesterday that Ukrainian forces had broken through key lines and may be poised to gather pace. A reshuffle in the defence ministry is also contributing to that, which James and others will talk about shortly. But questions remain. Firstly, at what cost? Anecdotally, casualties are said to be very high for both sides, including Ukraine. And second, perhaps most importantly, how might the picture change as we approach autumn and winter? This is already an open subject of discussion among strategists, which I'll seek to summarise later. For now, though, David, those are some of the major stories as of one o'clock London time. Well, thank you very much, Francis. Let's go to our foreign correspondent, James Kilner, then. James, you were on the Russia desk over the weekend. Uh, There's two really big stories I'd like you to talk us through. One is, of course, the fact that Russia struck the port of Rennie and, of course, the resignation of Alexei Reznikov from the Defence Ministry in Ukraine. Can you start with Rennie, James? What should we know today about that strike? Hi, David. Well, uh, the the, the Rennie attack yesterday was part of a bigger attack that included Odessa. And it's clearly part of a pattern that we've seen since the beginning of July when the Kremlin pulled out of this uh, Black Sea grain deal 
And it's all about damaging, dismantling, um, disabling the um, Ukrainian grain export infrastructure ahead of negotiating a new Black Sea grain contract deal to, to allow grain out. Russia's coming under huge pressure from its from African states, from the Middle East, from um, South Asian states. And these are countries that it still feels it needs the court. This is the important thing here. There's a huge diplomatic element. Russia, without many of its sort of major friends, still feels it needs to to be friendly to 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 lower income countries in Africa and and South Asia, etc. And so it's come under a little pressure to get the grain deal up and running again. But in the meantime, in the two months since um, it broke uh, up the previous deal, it has spent a lot of time and effort uh, destroying Ukrainian grain infrastructure. Most of it is in Odessa, uh, the biggest um, Ukrainian port. Uh, but uh, since the start of the war, Ukraine's been into a lot of effort into restructuring its grain export systems through the Danube Delta. Now, this is on the very western edge of uh, Ukraine. The Danube obviously flows into the Black Sea, so it goes up through western Ukraine, Romania, and then into Central Europe. And it gives Ukraine a, a huge export corridor, if you like. And Rennie, this port of about 160,000 people live there, right on the very western edge of Ukraine, overlooking the Danube. Um, Romania's on the other side of the Danube. Moldova's a bit further up. Has previously was basically a non-functioning port. And in, since the start of the war, Ukraine has regenerated it, and it is now an important cog, so to speak, in this grain export system. The Kremlin, for the second time since July, uh, sent drones to attack it on uh, Saturday night. So I was reporting up on that story. I think there are two or three drones involved in the attack on, on Rennie, which is a long way from Russia's air bases. We have to keep that in mind as well. And there's about 25 drones attacked Odessa. Odessa has some serious air defence systems, shot down 22 of them. Rennie, I don't think, does. And the two or three drones, they hit their targets. Now, this is all, as France has said, is important in the context of Erdogan and Putin's meeting today, which is focused on the grain deal. There has been, I have to say, I have to put this out there to, to listeners, there has been reports in the last month that Russia is trying to strike a grain deal which cuts out Ukraine. So this is an important factor here. That it needs Turkey as, as, the, as the main transport link. And there has been some suggestions that the Middle East will somehow finance the deal as well. But let's see what comes out of it today. Thanks very much for that, James. Can I quickly, um, before we talk about Reznikov, can I go to Joe Barnes, who I know has got some notes over this potential hit on Romanian territory? Hi, folks. Yeah, as um, sort of a keen NATO watcher and someone that's been yeah close to these apparent strikes on, in terms of following them, I remember back to the time um, I was actually in Ukraine when a uh, first accusation came across the airwaves that a... Russian missile has landed in Poland, killing two people on farmland, and that sort of turned out to be the remnants of a Ukrainian air defence missile rather than Russian, but was very much hushed up. We've had one land in Moldova, which isn't a NATO member and not covered by NATO's Article 5. But then there's this accusation again. Russia has struck increasingly close to Romanian territory, probably 100 metres, less than a kilometre away across the Danube, but the sort of inter-river ports... But what has prompted this is there's this picture on social media that's cropped up and it's of a sort of a night sky, a tiny body of water and then a sign of what looks like an explosion on the opposite bank of the river. 
it's very inconclusive. There's no sort of large objects or buildings and kind of things that the kind of great geolocators of Twitter and the internet would look for, sign of these defining kind of pinpoints that they can then help use to locate using sort of Google Maps and other various satellite footage. That doesn't, it gives an inconclusive picture. But actually what the statement that Francis mentioned a second ago has actually been released and the Romanian Defence Ministry has categorically denied that anything has landed on its territory. And I'll read, I'll, I'll read the statement for you. The Ministry of National Defence firmly denies the information circulating in the public space with regard to a so-called situation occurred during the night of the 3rd and 4th of September when Russian drones would have fallen on Romania's national territory. The Ministry of National Defence responsible structures monitored in real time the situation generated by the Russian drone attacks conducted last night as well as on Saturday night against the infrastructure from the proximity of the Ukrainian harbours at the Danube. At no time did the means of attack employed by the Russian Federation pose a direct military threat to our national territory or Romania's territorial waters. The Ministry of National Defence has taken enhanced vigilance measures in the ground, maritime and airspace, and contributes to consolidation of the defence and deterrence posture on the eastern flank in accordance with the national and allied plans. Uh, And then he goes on to basically say, look, they also think the Russian strikes on civilian and shipping infrastructure are unjustified and break all international humanitarian rules. So I think it's one of those ones where the Ukrainian government it would really do them a favour to have in terms of support and extra help if these projectiles were landing on NATO territory. But it looks like after sort of an, a mini investigation, the Romanian Defence Ministry has put a kibosh to that claim. And that is now almost dead in the water. And I'll stop there. Thanks very much, Joe. James, can I come back to you? Can we talk about Alexei Reznikov? I think we need to spend some time on this. He was dismissed last night, handed in his resignation letter. You wrote up the story for The Telegraph. Can you talk us through and then we'll bring in Aliona for some analysis? So, yeah, that was uh, Zelensky giving us work correspondence, even more work to do late on Sunday night, which was, yeah, thanks for that. He could have waited for Monday morning, but there we go. Anyway, so Reznikov, we've been sort of expecting his sacking all year, really. I remember it was back in about February time, that there was an initial investigation into alleged corruption in the Ministry of Defence, the ministry that he was running um, over, over overinflated prices that the ministry was paying for eggs of all things. And then since then, there have been other corruption investigations as well, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it was highly rumoured at the time that Riznikov was going to get the sack. He didn't. And, it, and in the wider context of this story, just to throttle back a little bit, is that Zelensky is under a lot of pressure to show that he can cut down on corruption as well as fight this war against Russia. He needs to cut down on corruption because it's a big tick boxes in the EU um, application form and then and also in the NATO application form. And also he won his presidential election on an anti-corruption ticket. And Ukraine has typically been a corruption that is considered more or less endemic, etc. So he, he's coming to pressure to crack, crack down on it. His ally, Reznikov, uh, former Soviet parachute, soldier turned lawyer turned politician was running the ministry he's been implicated i i have to say he's never been charged or or, or the, the implications have only been that he has run the ministry while there's been corruption going on underneath it he's not benefited personally from it but anyway his his, his he was obviously tarnished by this now he's gone and i think the really important thing about this is the timing 
So he was known as a very smooth operator, able to basically his main job was to go to meet international leaders, his opposite numbers around the world, etc., persuade them to give billions of pounds worth of kit, tanks, missiles, F-16 fighter jets more recently. And I think, and and, and um, Adiorna is going to have a much better insight into this, I think possibly timing is one of the most important things here. He was kept on by Zelensky, although he had these corruption scandals had tarnished his, his reputation. He'd been kept on by Zelensky and he's gone. He was given the sack in the same week that Ben Wallace resigned. Ben Wallace had been very important in the Ukraine war effort and has previously described Lesnikov as his good friend. So... I'm just trying to read between the lines here. Maybe he was kept on to see out the rest of that relationship with Wallace. He's also given the boot shortly after Ukraine had received and been given permission by NATO in the US to, to take charge of F-16 fighter jets. Maybe that is also something to do with it. He, his replacement is Crimean Tartar, Rustem Umerov, who was actually born in Uzbekistan. And the, the Crimean Tartars, uh, many of them were, were exiled in Central Asia by, by the Soviet Union. And he's known as a hardcore anti-corruption Zelensky loyalist. He was involved in early peace negotiations with um, Russia in about uh, March 2022 and was one of three people who came down with suspected poisoning during those uh, negotiations with the Kremlin. So it's going to be interesting to see how he gets on. It's going to be interesting to see um, uh, what happens to Riznikov. I've, I've heard that he might become the ambassador in the UK, which reinforces the sort of theory that he may have been allowed to continue his Ministry of Defence, or Ben Wallace was also his opposite number because he has such good relations with the UK. Anyway, that's the, that's my update. Thank you very much, James. Well, let's bring in Aliona Hilivka. Aliona, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the new job. What would you like to add to James's analysis there? Thank you, David. Indeed, quite interesting developments overnight from Sunday, but as you've rightly mentioned, Ukraine doesn't wait to announce the big news. It did not come as a surprise for the Ukrainians that Tereznikov was sacked. At least from July, it's been already decided within the authorities in Bankova, the street where the president's office is situated in Kiev, that uh, Tereznikov will have to go eventually. It was due to several factors. First of all, yes, the corruption scandals that he, although was not implicated in personally, but he still didn't manage to manage the ministry properly and to secure them from those events happening. Firstly, with the produce for soldiers, where eggs were too high of a price. And secondly, the latest scandal came in, in August. In fact, the journalists have reported about it on the 10th of August, it was a result of the investigation conducted by Ukrainska Pravda, where they've discovered that the winter jackets that were allegedly bought and procured by the Ministry of Defense turned out to be summer jackets. So obviously the price was completely off there. It did not correspond. They have found that one of the Ukrainian MPs was behind that scheme, but again, Reznikov as a minister failed to see that scheme and to prevent it from happening. And now his response to the scandal was also not quite adequate. He refused for the longest time to comment on it for the journalists. He started giving weird excuses, making bets with the journalists that it's not true. So it was not really a uniform response. You could tell that perhaps 
based on that, I was thinking to myself, well, maybe he is getting quite tired of his role and he's ready to resign. And so it dragged out for the whole of August with those scandals. And at the end of it, we did see it around 23rd, 24th of August, it was obvious that he would go. And then, of course, the first rumors had started appearing that he might actually uh, replace the current ambassador, Pristaiko, in London, that allegedly he maybe even mentioned himself that he wouldn't mind this new role. So we are yet to uh, find out and see whether he's going to be our new ambassador here in London. But among other news on Reznikov, he did about the timeline. So he did stay long enough, first of all, to secure the most important win of the year, if not of the war itself, is the delivery of F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. And he even shared it in some personal conversations that as soon as that is done, he will consider his job as a minister done. So as we've seen in the late August, President Zelensky has secured fighter jets being delivered to Ukraine in early 2024 from three countries, uh, Norway, Denmark and the Netherlands. So that's a big win and that's considered done now. Now, there was another factor in terms of timeline and that's the upcoming Rammstein meeting that is meant to be happening on the 19th of September. And the Rammstein meeting is a diplomatic effort by more than 50 countries that have united in their effort to supply Ukraine with weapons, ammunition, and everything it needs to find the war. It's a group that is chaired by David Lloyd Austin, the Defense Minister of the United States. So that next meeting was meant to also produce some results. And I'm sure you know uh, that Minister Reznikov, now former Minister Reznikov, was good friends with Austin and with Ben Wallace, as mentioned before. So perhaps there was one caveat that he might actually be sacked after the 19th of September, but here we are. I think the news aligned well with the UK defense minister coming in, the new defense minister. So President Zelensky perhaps thought that this could be a good time to align with the allies and not to make it look too strange. Well, thanks very much for that, Aliona. Just one question from me. What more can you tell us about Rustem Umerov? What should we know about uh, the potential new uh, defence minister of Ukraine? What, what do you hear um, with your sources? Um, so that's very interesting candidacy, actually. I think the parliament will safely secure his position as, as the new minister. But one thing that was rightly mentioned, he is state of property fund of Ukraine. And that's the position that President Zelensky would only trust um, someone who he can rely on of not being prone to corruption because obviously that is the government body that is in charge of all state-owned property and the privatization processes. And when I was an MP in Ukraine, I was on the a privatization committee of state-owned property and I have seen a lot of things that go down. It's quite a tough job to hold. One of the property fund heads in Ukraine was even murdered back in the early 2000s. So it's also a role that's, it's, the stakes are high in this role. So we can definitely tell that he's an effective manager. Now, his performance of this role is yet to be discussed and analyzed, but that, I think, is based on general Ukraine strategy of what exactly needs to be privatized to shift fully into the market economy after the Soviet Union and which industries and enterprises are actually strategic and essential to Ukraine. And I think only now 
with the war in Ukraine, we're coming to that realization and maybe that strategy will be altered a little bit. Now, when it comes to his political views, he came from a different party. It was not servant of the People Party. It was Party Holos that was led by a singer in Ukraine who's run for parliament twice. He's then left politics, but Holos was often in opposition to the Ukrainian president. But of course, when the war started, the opposition in itself just ceased to exist because everyone was backing uh, Zelensky and the government in their effort to save the country. Um, another important note to make, apart from the fact that Rustam is, of course, a Crimean Tatar, he was born into a family who was in exile. They were deported by the Soviets from Crimea into Uzbekistan. And from there, they've moved, they returned back home to Crimea only in the 90s. So first of all, we have to note that the issue of deportation of Crimean Tatars, of them occupying the land rightfully, and of Crimea being part of Ukraine is an essential issue. So for him, that will be number one thing on the agenda. And that's definitely something he believes in strongly. He was also the co-chair of the Crimea platform. And that's the diplomatic initiative that President Zelensky established as soon as, as he came into the office of the president of, of Ukraine to corroborate the support. Because if we remember in 2019-2020, the world has almost begun to forget about Crimea being occupied by Russia. Some companies and countries have included Crimea as part of Russia on their maps. So it was slowly slipping away. And then Crimea platform was established by President Zelensky, uniting heads of states and various diplomatic missions to reinforce the idea that Crimea should be returned to Ukraine and to develop mechanisms for that. Of course, with a full-blown war, um, that issue has arisen again. He was effectively chairing the organization as a Crimean Tatar, as a representative of indigenous people from Crimea. So that, as a minister of defense who comes from Crimea, who believes strongly in the fact that it should be returned to Ukraine, I think that needs to be watched closely. And he will surely repeat that idea and his belief to all the world leaders and his counterparts that he meets, and that will definitely be part of his strategy. In terms of his other international alignments, it's quite interesting to see that, of course, being Crimean Tatar, he is Muslim, but he's also a chair of interparliamentary groups uh, with Turkey and Saudi Arabia. So he's got really strong ties built with those countries and their representatives. So it's going to be very interesting to see how Minister of Defense, whereas Zereznikov was very friendly with all the NATO ministers, and surely that will be part of Rustem's job to build those relationships from scratch as well. But it's very interesting that now the minister steps in, who's already got very strong ties, number one, with Turkey, who's a NATO ally, but we know that Turkey is a country that's very peculiar and has got its own political and international agenda, but is crucial to Ukraine's Black Sea security. And then we have Saudi Arabia, who's becoming a very strong actor in the so-called global south and generally in the international arena. So that's going to be a very interesting dynamic to watch. Well, thank you very much, Eleonor, for giving us the download there on Rustem Omerov. I know that we've all got questions for you. So can I go to, uh, let's keep these relatively brief. Francis, can I go to you first? 
Sure. Thanks, David. Hi, Aliona. Always a pleasure to hear your voice on the podcast. Just a brief one from me. How would you summarise the political situation in Kyiv at the moment? There's been a lot of changes, quite a few sackings. Is this Zelensky re-establishing his authority in your view? Or is it more of a recalibration designed for the next phase of the war and particularly with the Western powers in mind? Um, thank you, Francis. Zelensky is on a very interesting drive at the moment, and I find it personally very interesting to watch him because he has changed himself and his narrative, his actions changed. First of all, when I watched his interview with one of the Ukrainian TV channels that's lasted over an hour, and the previous time that's been done, it was two years ago when he essentially first stepped into power. And just to see the change in him as a leader, where before he said that he wants to be remembered in Ukraine's history as someone who's achieved great successes for the country, perhaps you, a membership, perhaps ending the war, that was still on the agenda. But he was quite ambitious in a personal capacity. Whereas now, when I watched that interview, first of all, he doesn't even remember saying that, or he was genuinely surprised that was his number one priority to be remembered. Now he was talking about the nation having to grow up to the reality of international geopolitical setup to understand that, yes, Ukrainians are paying this great price for their freedom and we're sacrificing lives and lives of our loved ones every day. But we also have to understand that the world is quite a pragmatic place and unless your interests align, you should not expect any freebies or handouts and Ukraine needs to adjust to that, that the elections change situations in the world and change the support. So it was very interesting to see that. And I think from that stems his new approach to the Ukrainian internal politics. First of all, he's on this big drive to actually make next steps towards the European Union membership. He is definitely determined on combating corruption and implementing some other steps. We've seen a quite successful rollout of the anti-corruption court earlier in the year, and I think it's functioning well. We have seen the delegation of all the anti-corruption agencies going to D.C. just a few days ago. So I'm sure they're aligning those efforts with the partners in the United States. And we have seen a series of anti-corruption efforts that and actions that Zelensky has, has done from sacking all the heads of military conscription offices in Ukraine to detaining really big names in Ukrainian politics and business, like, say, Ihor Kolomoisky the other day, one of the most famous oligarchs in Ukraine and the one who used to be known to be quite close to President Zelensky himself is now in custody for two months and is being accused of fraud and money laundering. I know at least two other oligarchs that have suffered from the same accusation. Their businesses have been nationalized. There have been sanctions by Ukraine, even though they have not been sanctioned internationally. So Zelensky is actually making some really strong moves that no other president has ever done in Ukraine before in the history of independence, he's actually cracking down on oligarchs seriously. And, you know, there was this one famous oligarch going back to Ihor Kolomoisky, who has had some issues with the United States especially, but there were doubts whether Zelensky will go after him or not, because they 
I wouldn't say they were never business partners, but Zelensky's TV show and production company was heavily featured on the Kolomoisky's TV channels and media channels. So they were very close, and yet now they couldn't be further apart. And that will be very interesting to watch what actually happens to Kolomoisky, given that he's also a citizen not just of Ukraine, but also of Cyprus and Israel. And I know for sure that he tried to obtain a citizenship of Switzerland. I don't know how far he got with that. But overall, Francis, I'm sure you've talked about this on the podcast too, Ukraine is currently deliberating on an option whether to have elections or not. And that's a whole other topic and a very difficult one, because on one hand, I think the Western partners expect Ukraine and perhaps hint at the possibility that Ukraine needs to have elections just to maybe not descend into authoritarianism, because that is certainly not something that Ukrainian society will tolerate. That is simply not an option for Ukraine. But perhaps to to challenge Zelensky's rule, and for him not having the single majority in the parliament of over 70%, that's the first time that Ukraine has had that, just based on one political party, Many of the MPs of Servants of the People majority have been discredited and also involved in many corruption scandals or trying to leave the country or have left the country during the war by fabricating documents just to avoid conscription, I suppose. There are many issues why perhaps some actors in the West think that it would be best to hold democratic elections in Ukraine now, but that is simply impossible. With the martial law, uh, with, first of all, constitution forbidding any elections happening on the territory of Ukraine during the martial law, and then how just operationally and financially how you arrange those and how do you make them representative and how do you protect people on the voting day and how do you make sure that the soldiers in the trenches have their say as well. It's just very unnecessary at this point and I don't think it is justified at all. Uh, but that is something that's the discussion that's being held in the Ukrainian society. And to be fair, within even civil society and the journalists and everyone who is holding that responsibility to hold the government accountable, they are all against that as well. Well, thank you very much, Aliona, for all of that. We'll come back to further questions for you at the end, I think. But can we move to uh, Joe Barnes? Joe, you've been reflecting and thinking about the Ukrainian assault on Verbove uh, that we talked about briefly last week, but you've written up a, a whole analysis of what you think was going on there. Can you talk us through your thinking? Verbove was a lot of focus, and as as we often discuss, the fog of war stops us from knowing what's happening. We, we get these statements from Ukraine every day, from the Ukrainian general staff, from Hannah Malia, the deputy defence minister, sort of spokeswoman position there she holds saying there's been progress in this area that sits between Novo Prokopivka and Verbove which is on the Orokiv axis so one of the three axes of a offence that Ukraine is carrying out it's just interesting to see after sort of weeks if not months of criticism from uh, whether it be from the US anonymous officials briefing the Washington Post or the New York Times, or that German document that was leaked via Build that said that basically Ukraine wasn't using its NATO training to good effect. And so I wanted to sort of drill down and go, like, why why is the counter moving slowly, but where are Ukraine actually 
looking and finding success. Essentially, it boiled down to Ukraine have taken this attritional process where they base themselves heavily in a position and essentially refuse to let their enemies rest while they slowly whittle down Russia's ability to basically launch retaliatory artillery barrages. Um, so in the skies above Fubove, um in the week, week or two before this apparent first line of the Sorovkin line of defence was breached by uh, Rekian force units, drones were flying in the sky, basically spotting Russians hoping to rotate to the rear and then the reinforcements sent in to replace them. So essentially Russians seeking respite were blocked from crossing the flat open steppes of southern Ukraine while reinforcements were destroyed on their way to reinforce that area. And this is where sort of cluster munitions played a great role. It, it really enabled Ukraine to target larger land masses uh, than is usually hit by sort of a 155 or a smaller shell. And then at the, at the same time they were targeting, Kiev's men were targeting the Russian troops. They were also like really involved in an con- intense uh, counter-battery campaign, essentially to try and destroy as much of Moscow's long-range capabilities in the area. And they also destroyed an, anu- an ammunition dump situated in Vobo Base. They were basically, what, what it was essentially the Ukrainian forces were trying to achieve, that they hoped that they would fare better in launching an assault on Vobove or across the Sorovkin line against an, an exhausted and battle-stricken enemy. And so that's that's why, essentially, progress was slow, it was attritional, it was grinding. Ukraine suffered sort of large equipment losses in the first days of the counteroffensive when they were trying this huge NATO-style combined arms manoeuvre, like driving tanks into vast minefields. The Bradley's fighting vehicles were, were often seen being abandoned as troops were forced to go on foot and retreat, essentially. But earlier last week, so Ukraine eventually reached this Sorovkin line, and I've described it in my notes as a network of trenches, tank traps, fortifications put in place by the former commander of Russia's invasion to essentially protect its land bridge between the mainland and occupy Crimea. So Ukrainian forces essentially managed to get themselves into two positions where they were knocking on the front door of that Sorovkin line in Vobov, and then Robotone, the village slightly to the west, which Kiev claimed to have liberated last Monday. And at the same time, if you then boiled down and looked at various different sources, the Ukrainians are obviously very quiet, they're careful, they're, they, they want operational secrecy about everything they're doing, send up various text messages to people sort of operating near the front line in the hope of one day getting a sort of a really great insight. But the Ukrainians are very good at that. They stick to the party line, they, they won't stray from it. So we have to kind of then look at pro-Kremlin sources, these kind of Russian military bloggers, which sometimes we describe as sort of authoritative, but we can never really know what they're what they're talking about, because do we trust them? No, but we can look at them, and they sometimes tell the picture before the Ukrainians do. And various telegram channels started to talk about this increasingly perilous situation that was faced by Russian troops in Vobov, which was, before before the war, sort of an agricultural village. It had a pre-war population of around a 1,000, so it's not a sort of a major point on the map, but it's but what it has been 
become essentially is a village that is integrated into this Sorovkin line of defence. And we believe where Ukraine are attacking on that kind of northwestern edge, the defences are slightly weaker than elsewhere on the Sorovkin line. So, and, and as I say there, so when the time came for Ukraine to essentially try and cross this Sorovkin line, it started with the, they launched several sort of 15-man reconnaissance in force units to penetrate those Russian defences. We first sort of got a glimpse of Ukrainian troops being geolocated um, for the first time operating in the tree lines on the outskirts of Vovo last Wednesday. And then Russian defences started to collapse and Kiev's men in that area started taking control of basically the array of sort of network of trenches, tree lines in the area. And they started to basically claw back more more territory. And they, they started to get an eye, almost they could smell blood. Ukrainian commanders could smell blood. And they decided to call in a second echelon of force, uh, which included the uh, 82nd Air Assault Brigade, their... Um, they were trained by Britain. They're, they are believed to operate the 14 Leopard 2 tanks that Britain has donated and have a various other, I think, Marder and Striker fighting vehicles from the US and Germany as well. And then to sort of reinforce this, again, this is looking through the Russian sphere of it. Russian sources reported that the offensive was actually being supported by Ukrainian fighter jets. You don't often see Ukrainian fighter jets that close to the front line because... Moscow still has a great sort of air defence network and essentially has control of the sky. No one has dominance. And this is one reason why probably governments or armchair generals in the West are wrong to to criticise Ukraine for not acting like a NATO military because often a NATO military will be advancing under the cover of having air superiority. And then what it looked like was Ukraine had seemingly been able to capitalise on the dwindling Russian troop numbers when its men penetrated that defensive line for the first time. And so for the first time, sort of pro-Kremlin outlets started expressing their concerns that Kyiv had the upper hand in this area. So Rybar, one of those Russian military bloggers that we all look to, it was famed for probably reporting the Kharkiv counteroffensive last September faster than any Ukrainian or Russian sort of actual news outlet that account basically described ukraine as having a numerical advantage in the fight uh, over territory in the west of the Bove. and then sort of i'd reached out to various analysts and justin crump of sibylline um, an intelligence and geopolitical risk firm who we speak to at the telegraph a fair amount he basically said direct defensive lines are only effective if covered by fire from troops and ukraine certainly seems to have been able to push comparatively quickly around the Bove as a result of weakness. The lines of the defense the lines of defenses on the map do not therefore mean everything, but only if the Russians can be worn in a particular area and overwhelming force is rapidly applied. So basically what he's saying is can Ukraine whittle down the Russians and then open a small hole which will then unleash the floodgates where they basically push in a bigger force and then make that hole bigger and bigger. So essentially what Kyiv's forces were, were doing, they're now fighting to expand a salient to create a larger hole, enough for a sort of maybe a fully mechanised assault using the Western-provided tanks and, and armoured vehicles. But still we don't know. Little is known about whether Ukraine has managed to sort of form a bridgehead over Russia's main line of defence. As I was saying, Kyiv would rather keep that detail secretive. They talk about, and in today's General Staff's announcement, they spoke about how that they were fighting at these entrenched 
achieve boundaries and they were inflicting like great losses on the enemy and on equipment but that was it they weren't telling us where they were but then what we do know is any sort of real breakthrough in Verbove would mark sort of a major moment in Ukraine's three-month-old counter-offensive um, which has essentially been slowed by really like and we could probably actually praise them on this Russian defences they've really put in a strong network of defences that aren't haven't been seen by a Western military let alone sort of Ukraine which is 700,000 soldiers many of them recruits who have volunteered to defend their country and then they've used like minefields artillery units they've got these great sort of tank hunting units and attack helicopters to basically slow Ukraine in its tracks that has opened up slow progress has opened up Kiev to criticism from the US and Germany as I say but as Francis said at the top of the pod that America is starting to come through. So what what we're seeing is sort of slow progress, but that is why it's slow. Ukraine are trying to conserve men and hopefully tilt the balance where one day when they really want to make that push, they will have that numerical advantage in troops and deep fires, those artillery systems. Can they get high miles up close enough to the line to really start dealing damage? They've got about 60 miles to go before they hit the Azov coast, which is that target they want to use to split the land bridge, but also split Russian forces in the south and the east. So look, it's not it's not clear what's going to happen. Uh, it's pretty impossible to assess in, with any real degree of accuracy how the Ukrainians are truly faring and how close they are to a proper breakthrough. But what we do know is the Russians are under significant pressure, um, as are the Ukrainians, but they look like that's why they're moving slowly and it looks like they've got a got a chance of doing something if they can gain a foothold in that numerical advantage. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much for all of that, Joe. Um, we've got a fair few number of stories to get through. So uh, let's go to Francis Durnley first. Francis. I think my bit comes quite nicely off the back of what Joe was saying. Uh, I mentioned earlier that conversations have already begun about how the battlefield picture may be altered or not by shifts in the weather. Regular listeners will be familiar with retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, former head of US Army Europe and a major commentator on the war, who I was lucky enough to interview for the podcast a few weeks ago. He's responded to criticisms on Twitter that his prediction that Ukraine's troops would be in Crimea by now uh, is flawed by saying, and I quote, yes, I did predict that. I wrongly believe the US government would have realised uh, by this summer that Ukraine winning this war was in our best interest. I hope they do eventually come to this realisation. Criticise me for being wrong, but don't get bet against Ukraine. And I mention this because it offers an important explanation as to why Ukraine has not managed to make the breakthroughs many hoped possible this summer but also because of the caveat it offers to all predictions regarding winter. It will depend entirely on the evolving situation regarding military support from Western countries. That said, retired Army Major General Mick Ryan has offered some thoughts on this. He says, and again I'm quoting, Forecasts for winter this year are predicting a winter similar to last year. Expect cold and wet weather, overcast and mud. All of these have an impact on the planning for and execution of military operations, as well as humanitarian support. The Ukrainian winter campaign will probably have three strategic objectives. First, it will want to project a sense of progress. Activity to regain and retain support for Ukraine, prevent pointless peace initiatives and continue the flow of equipment will be key to their winter campaign. 
Second, Ukraine will want to sustain the momentum they have generated with ground, air and maritime ops. This will depend on the military situation and the levels of stockholdings for key military consumables such as army, uh, sorry, artillery munitions, fuel and precision munitions. Third, Ukraine will want to ensure its people are able to endure the winter conditions. This humanitarian imperative becomes even more stark given that Russia might again strike civilian infrastructure this winter to put political pressure on Zelensky's government. And just as a tangent there, of course, we discussed that very question, I think it was on Wednesday's episode, because there has been some developments on that and military intelligence suggests that they will not be capable of striking as effectively as they did last year. But anyway, he goes on. What does achieving these strategic objectives look like? Ukraine has the initiative. As such, we should expect Ukraine to conduct ground attacks where they find weaknesses in Russian defences. Concurrently, they will continue strikes against operational level targets such as logistic nodes, electronic warfare and naval systems, Russian transport infrastructure, as well as C2 facilities. It will aim to break down as much of the Russian operational system as possible. Ukraine has the capacity to undertake strategic strikes against targets in occupied Crimea and Russia. These will be sustained or accelerated over winter, weather permitting. The Ukrainian government has a careful balancing act to achieve in this regard. The strikes should have military utility or achieve a political impact while avoiding civilian casualties or upsetting its supporters in the West. I agree. I think that's absolutely paramount. Finally, he offers some thoughts on Russian objectives. Russian commander Gerasimov will want to consolidate key enablers like logistics, fires and command and control to ensure they are survivable. Grasimov apparently still retains the confidence of Putin, at least publicly. Depending on how much progress Ukraine makes in the south, Grasimov might also want to review the leadership of the Russian forces in, in Ukraine. There has already been a mini-purge after the Bogosian mutiny. Grasimov might feel he has breathing space over winter to shuffle the deck with his commanders to keep them focused on the battlefield and not worrying about the direction of the war or his performance. Winter is also an opportunity for him to finalise his plans for the campaigns he will conduct in 2024. Just as he did at the beginning of 23, he might want to begin the new year with a bang and commence offensive activity in January. Barack Obama also knows that a higher strategic priority is to not lose. Putin's theory of victory is to have Ukrainian supporters tire of the war and reduce their support. Perhaps more importantly, Russian misinformation campaigns will be honed and focused on the US presidential election next year. Russian information operations personnel will be heavily invested in shaping perceptions and assisting anti-Ukraine candidates in 2024. So uh, I agree with all that, David. And on that latter point on the presidential election and its potential impact, that will, of course, be a key theme on our trip to the US, which starts next week, which we very much look forward to doing. I think it's going to be a very, very crucial few months. And I know we always say that, but particularly on this blending of the political and the military, this is going to be a key moment. And so we'll obviously be monitoring it very, very closely. Thanks very much, Francis. Um, Before we go to James to talk us through um, some of the other stories he's been working on this weekend. uh, One final thing from you, Francis. You spoke at length last week about the British Foreign Secretary's visit to China and the issues it raised regarding Western dealings with Xi Jinping. That visit has taken place. What did we learn? 
On the surface, not much. James cleverly met with China's foreign minister and the British Foreign Office put out a statement saying that China has a responsibility to press Russia to end its invasion of Ukraine, defuse tensions in the South China Sea and cease malign activity in cyberspace. He also, in a meeting, apparently challenged China on the erosion of autonomy rights and freedoms in Hong Kong under the national security law, as well as other UK interests, including sanctions placed on UK MPs. Nothing about us journalists, though. Uh, Chinese official media outlets filtered out anything controversial, emphasising the talks focus on economic and trade cooperation and creating a sound business environment. No surprises there, but I was surprised to see Cleverly also hold a brief meeting with 15 British business leaders whose companies work in China, evidently designed to send a signal that Britain has no intention of economic decoupling. Again, it does seem to send rather mixed messages, much like President Macron did on his trip several months ago. It's as if one hand is a fist and the other is extended. And one wonders, does that really constitute a consistent and wise policy stance given the vulnerabilities of the moment? And the Chinese hardly responded in a way that Britain will celebrate after Mr. Cleverly departed. Part of the motivation for the view, we were told, was to lay the groundwork for Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to meet with Xi at the G20 summit in India that's coming up. Yet Xi has just pulled out of that and has also upset many countries in the Asia-Pacific region with its release of a new official map that lays claim to most of the South China Sea, as well as contested parts of India and Russia. In this map, China clearly shows its so-called nine-dash line, demarcating what it considers its maritime border. And in releasing it now... Beijing will be interpreted by many as showing that it has no desire, even after the BRICS summit, even after overtures by the British Foreign Secretary, to back down in any of its claims. The usual suspects, uh, listeners will know who they are, are saying that one shouldn't read too much into this. But I'm rather old fashioned and agree with Maya Angelou when she said that when people show you who they are, believe them the first time. We see time and time again China acting in a way that is hostile and imperious, yet we are told to ignore this by realists. I do hope they're right, genuinely. But if they're not, historians in the future will surely look back on this period and say, how could so many so-called experts and political leaders be so willfully blind? Well, thank you very much, Francis. Let's go back to Russian news then. James Kilner, over the weekend, you wrote a very interesting story about political problems for Vladimir Putin's party. Can you tell us about this and potentially some of the, um, well, I mean, what does it mean for him? How much should we read into this? Yeah, so this is, I'm going to take listeners now to a remote region of Siberia, Caucasia, which is about five hours flight away from Moscow, very sparsely populated, uh, known for its mountains and lakes, that sort of thing natural beauty on the edge of the Alatai Mountains towards Kazakhstan and Mongolia, that sort of area. This is one of the only regions of of Russia that Vladimir Putin, through his political party, United Russia, doesn't control in 2018. It lost the governorship election there off the back of sort of general public discontent focus around uh, the Kremlin raising the age of retirement. So this uh, young communist guy, Won in he's 30, 30 years old Valentin Konovalov. He won in twenty he he won in twenty eighteen and humiliated the Kremlin. Kremlin's been plotting its revenge ever since. 
And this revenge was meant to focus, and this is the really important bit here, and this is why Putin's not getting his, all his own way on, in his own backyard, and it's all coming back to the war in Ukraine. This is the important point. We have regional elections in across Russia next uh, weekend, and the race in Hakassia is one of the most important. And the Kremlin's candidate withdrew on Saturday morning. He said he was ill, he was in hospital, too ill to stand. And this comes after publicly released opinion polls showed that it was neck and neck with uh, the communist candidate. Secret opinion polls, which are now being quoted, secret Kremlin opinion polls, which are now being quoted by pro-Kremlin media, apparently said that he was going to lose. So this is this was not allowed to happen by the Kremlin. They had picked this guy, Sergei Sokol, as their candidate. He's a he's an MP in the, in the national parliament. They picked him because he was an absolute zedder. He was backing uh, Putin's war in Ukraine to the hilt, and they thought this was going to be an election winner. They uh, they commissioned him to go down and spend a few months fighting in this Cascade VIP battalion, which is located fifty uh, odd miles behind the front lines in occupied Donbass, and it flies drones rather than does any uh, trench war fighting, etc. It's been set up so that people like Sokol can pose in military uniforms and get decorated. And this is what's happened. Uh, Putin himself gave a so-called an order of courage medal, just meant to gild his his victorious governorship campaign. And he started off by wearing his military uniform, wearing baseball caps with Zs and Vs on. These are the pro-war insignia of the um, of the nationalists in in Russia, and it went down terribly. So much so that I remember a story about six weeks ago in United Russia withdrew its um, its its advice to its candidates to campaign on the war and actually said, look, tone it down, guys. And Sokol actually dropped the military outfit and, and did his stump speeches in, in a suit, etc. It still didn't work. He has been found out. The people of Hakassia are, are not going to have any of it, according to the polls. Now, the uh, United Russia, Kremlin, Putin have another problem here. It's a remote region, because, and because they don't control the governorship, they have less control over the mechanics of government in the region. And analysts have said it is it's more difficult for the Kremlin to ballot stuff in Hakassia than it is in other regions because of this, this reason. This meant that they had to try and win the election more or less fairly with Sokol, their pro-war Russian war-decorated candidate, etc., campaigning on his hardcore war stance. Uh, as I've explained, this has failed. And they don't have the option of faking the election. So now they're taught they're going to try and get it cancelled. I, I read some media over the weekend saying that officials have been dispatched from Moscow to uh, uh, the region to try and find voter fraud, uh, to give them the option of cancelling, etc. Or they're going to try and pressure the other candidates to, to pull out the election also. This would allow, uh, allow the Kremlin to then directly appoint a governor, etc. So that is a really, really one hotspot election this weekend uh, remember there's elections across russia and also in the occupied territories in donbass and uh, crimea and, and and the others um but hakassia in siberia is is definitely one to watch david thank you very much james i'm realized we we are running out of time slightly here so can we just have one question from Joe or James to Aliona? I know that you both wanted to ask her something earlier. Who would like to have that honour? I was really interested in um, 
in what you're saying, Eleonora, is very, very fascinating. So such a great insight. And I was really interested for your sort of insight again into how much, how significant the Minister of Defence position actually is. Does it make policy? Does it get involved in any military strategies? Or is he just there as a military diplomat in chief to go to foreign capitals and glad hand and, and have dinner? and secure more military kit for Ukraine. Thank you, James. I think the position of Minister of Defense is quite significant in Ukrainian government. And according to Ukrainian constitution, which is parliamentary presidential republic, and the two ministers that President Zelensky personally oversees, and it's the two candidacies that he submits to the parliament, are the Minister of Defense and Minister of Foreign Affairs. It shows that president as the head of state that represents the state internationally and is responsible for national security internally. Those are the two main ministers that he relies upon. Now, Zelensky was often accused of stepping over his mandate and dealing with economy, with the prime minister, other ministries involved. But those two are definitely the ones he's been heavily relying on. And we could see that with close cooperation with Reznikov, as with uh, Kuleba, the, the foreign affairs minister. I think they do get to develop their own strategy. And before, the Ministry of Defense was also overseeing the production of weaponry and ammunition in Ukraine. It was conducted by Ukrabaronprom, the government body that I talked at length uh, during the Defense in Depth episodes for The Telegraph and how that's been restructured. It's now been moved from the Ministry of Defense towards the Ministry of Strategic Industries. So clearly, President Zelensky is rethinking the role of MOD in that. Um, another important note to make is that as of 2000. 14, if I'm not mistaken, but please don't quote me on that. Basically, right after the Revolution of Dignity, there has been a decision made that the Minister of Defense should be a civilian person. And that's why Reznikov suited that requirement quite well, because they need to come basically off people and understand where society is, be an effective manager, not so much military person, because that's being left for the Chief of Defense staff like Valery Zaluzhny, General Zaluzhny, who is quite well known here in the West as well. So all the specific strategies and tactics on the battlefield, that's with Chief of Defense Staff. When it comes to diplomatic effort to secure more funding, more ammunitions, more weapon to align strategies to get the intelligence, that's all, of course, on the Ministry of Defense. And I would not undermine the role that especially Rustam Umara will have to fulfill now. Thank you very much, Eleonor. Thank you very much, James, for the question. Um, I think we've run out of time, sadly, today. So can I just go around all of you for your final thoughts? Let's be relatively brief, please. Joe Barnes, would you like to start? Yeah, I just wanted to say how interesting I find it that the new Ukrainian defence minister hails from Crimea as a Crimean Tatar, at a time when Ukraine is really trying to ratchet up the pressure on Russian positions in occupied Crimea, we see pretty much daily drone strikes. We've seen, well, yeah, men landing on Crimea, Ukrainian soldiers landing on Crimea and carrying out kind of attacks on radar systems and, and the like. So it's, it's really interesting that the Ukrainian narrative around trying to reclaim Crimea and re-liberate it or liberate it when the West would probably prefer them to ignore that 
part of their lands invaded by Russia for the time being is just really fascinating. I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Joe. Francis Sternley. Thanks, David. The Nobel Foundation has reversed a controversial decision to invite ambassadors from Russia and Belarus to this year's Nobel Award ceremony in Stockholm after the move unsurprisingly sparked a fierce backlash. Listeners will recall that in 2022, the Nobel Foundation, which organises, of course, the annual prize ceremony, decided not to invite those countries' ambassadors to Stockholm because of the war in Ukraine. They made the same decision regarding the Iranian envoy over the country's crackdown on a wave of protests. But last week, the Swedish foundation said it was returning to its previous practice of inviting ambassadors from all countries represented in Sweden, sparking a wave of angry reactions. They have now rescinded that as a result of said outrage. I'm not surprised as the war rages on. How can one justify doing it one year and then not the next? It was unsustainable. Yet I mention it because it shows how, given the space, many organisations like countries will revert back to their default positions as the shock factor wanes, especially when there is money at play, unfortunately. And we've seen that with various sporting events. So it will remain a challenge for Ukraine and its supporters the longer this war goes on. Well, thank you very much, Joe James and Francis. Aliona, would you like the very final thoughts? Thank you, David. I think Ukraine has entered the new political season quite successfully with some reshuffles in the government. Hopefully we will be as successful on the battlefield as we are politically. Many developments to be watched on the front line, as I'm sure Ukrainians have still got some strong moves for September and October until the weather allows to make some progress there. And I think the Black Sea is actually the area to watch over the next few months because Ukraine is clearly gearing up with a maritime attack and assault on Russia. I think with all the drones and the special brigade being set up, that's going to be a very interesting space to watch. Ukraine trying to regain authority in the Black Sea. And overall, it's very interesting to see what will come out of the G20 summit and generally where the so-called global south is moving and how the whole geopolitical dynamics are shifting, especially in the lead up to the three most important presidential, sorry, not presidential, but electoral campaigns next year, which is the US presidential elections, the elections in the UK, the elections in the European Union, and let's not forget about elections in Russia, which will be quite interesting to watch as well. So the world is shifting. It's very interesting to see where we're going to be in six months from now. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, 
as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.